1: This episode is powered by Safety FM. You are listening to a renowned safety expert, Dr. Jay Allen on Safety FM. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast is brought to you by Safety Focus Moments. There are consultants that want to help you get the safety culture you've been looking for. For more information, go to safetyfocusmoment.com.
0: Hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen. As I told you, as we were starting the new year, there'd be some changes coming our general direction here at Safety FM. So if you haven't had an opportunity, take a listen to our newest show, Safety Talks, with Steve Sisson. It's available on all podcatchers, and it's also available at safetyfm.live. So this week, we're going to have a pretty interesting interview. Let me tell you exactly how it all started. Received an email from Dr. Todd Conklin saying, Hey, I have a gentleman that I think would be great to be on your show and for you to interview him. So he gave me the contact information, and all of a sudden, I contacted this gentleman. And I have to tell you, he was quite a gem of an interview. And the gentleman that I'm speaking about is Dr. Papaliti. Let me kind of give you a little bit of his background. Ivan applies his experience and research to operation in complex systems in high-risk environments, such as wildland firefighting, aviation, military, and medicine. As a U.S. Forest Service Director, Ivan developed and implemented the Learning Review, which is a process designed to improve how large and small organizations respond to accidents and incidents. The learning review is centered on understanding and mapping systemic conditions that influence human actions and decisions. Ivan's ability to integrate academic research with a real-world application comes from his varied life experiences, which have included work as a mine geologist and a U.S. Coast Guard pilot for rescue and law enforcement missions. Ivan served in the U.S. Air Guard and Air Force Reserves. He also served on active military operations for combat and humanitarian supports in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Central Africa. Ivan has earned his master's degree in Human Factors and System Safety at Lund University, Sweden, under Professor Sidney Decker. He's also completed his Ph.D. in Organizational Culture at Tilburg University in the Netherlands. He has also completed the USC Aviation Safety Program and the United States Air Force Accident Investigation and Board President courses. So as you can see, Dr. Ivan is quite a subject matter expert. Sit back and relax and enjoy our conversation with Dr. Ivan here on Safety FM.
1: You are listening to a renowned safety expert, Dr. Jay Allen on Safety FM. Changing safety cultures, one broadcast and one podcast at a time. Join the fun on social media and find us on Facebook at Safety FM.
0: So I guess really we can just start off with how did you get involved in safety and did it happen by accident or is this something that you were interested in doing starting off?
2: So I love the language of that question. Did my involvement in safety come by accident? And the answer to that is yes. And it's uh, it's because it came from actually many accidents. So I, I flew active duty Coast Guard for 10 years. And in that period of time, I was pardoned to two fatal accidents, one of which involved a friend of mine. So in 10 years, two fatal accidents and one and the loss of one friend. I joined the Forest Service And within the first year, I'd lost three friends in fatal aviation accidents. By the time I'd been in the business for five years, we'd lost in the neighborhood of 15 people that were close friends, people I had dinner with one night and they were dead the next. And I felt at that point that I had to do something different. I had to get out of the cockpit a little bit more and get more engaged in how to create safety and figure out how safety was actually created, because not everybody was crashing, and we were all doing dangerous work. Flying low-level is pretty much dangerous work, especially low-level over fires. And we're dropping retardant 125 feet above the trees, sometimes a little bit lower than that. So the work that we're doing, I would guess that most people would agree, is pretty pretty dangerous, pretty high risk, and our fatality rates were, were commensurate with that. But it wasn't until I got involved with... Uh, with safety at an aviation basis. So I was actually promoted to become a regional aviation safety manager. It wasn't until then that I started really doing accident investigations for the Forest Service. And I'd been educated by the military, uh, had had gone to uh, Navy uh, accident investigation school, uh, several other courses, and completed a complete curriculum in that. I completed the USC uh, aviation safety program, And um, I'd been involved in a couple of accidents on the military side because I was also an Air Force Reservist and I was involved with the Air Force Safety Center as well as flying for the the Air Force Reserves. So my involvement in safety kind of grew organically. I didn't start out as a safety person. I started out as an operator. But because I was exposed to so many fatalities, I felt like something had to be done. So that's kind of how I came into it.
0: Now, I know that you referenced right there that these were people that you knew and they were friends of yours was what are we talking like a length of time in between, you know, that all these occurrences happened?
2: In aviation, we were averaging two and a half accidents, fatal accidents a year. Um, that's a lot when you think about it. And that was for the first 10 years that I was in the forest service. Um, so some of these things were fatigue issues with aircraft. For example, two, two of the accidents that occurred in the, in the first 10 years of the forest service were, uh, Wing separations, which happened to a C-130 and also a PB-4Y. And as luck would have it, I uh, I had dinner with uh, with a PB PB-4Y crew the night before they died, and had actually flown on a fire with them the day before. And uh, I knew the folks in the C-130 quite well, although I was on the other side of the country when they crashed. So the other accidents, though for the most part, were what the FAA would term the NTSP would term CFIT accidents, which is con- controlled flight into terrain. I kind argue with that terminology a little bit because if you really were in control, like really fully in control, would you fly into terrain? And I think the answer to that is probably no. Um, so I, I, I started thinking about that, and that started me down a path of questioning the way we were approaching accidents. Uh, and the, the upshot of that was that... Uh, I uh, stepped into the safety role and I was assigned to be a chief investigator for an accident, a fatality accident that occurred on the Klamath National Forest that involved ground units as well as aviation units. And when I made that, crossed that bridge and realized that the ground folks were facing even higher risks than the aviation folks, for example, in a period of time since 1994, the forest and the forest, the wildland firefighting communities have uh, have experienced over 400 wildland firefighter fatalities. That's a lot of people. And I started looking at what was going on, what was happening. And I started asking questions quite a bit differently um, at that point. And I, I actually entreated a, a dear friend of mine, a guy by the name of Najmadin Meshkadi. He's a professor at University of California, uh, Los Angeles. Excuse me, I got that wrong. He's a, a, friend of mine, a professor from USC. And, um, He's been there for over 30 years, and he's, he was introduced to me through the uh, Aviation Safety Program at USC, and um, he taught human factors there. So I brought him on as, a, as a, uh, a way for me to start to learn differently and look differently at accidents, because the process that we had in the Forest Service was abysmal. And Naj helped quite a bit. And then from there, I started a, a master's degree program at every Riddle university, uh, in human factors and it was it was all right. It wasn't great. It wasn't a great program. But I, I came across a book in Naja's office and the book was a field guide to understanding human error by Sidney Decker. And uh, I grabbed the book in Los Angeles in Naja's office. He gave it to me. By the time I'd reached my home in Denver, Colorado, I'd read the entire book and needed to talk to this guy so i contacted sydney and sydney said well why don't you come join my my master's degree program in Lund, sweden and so i bailed out of every riddle program and immediately joined the Lund program and finished my master's degree with sydney and uh, i've got to say it was probably the most mind-opening experience that i've ever had and it certainly asked of every class member to look at human actions in a very different way Instead of looking at the human actions in a way to judge them as right or wrong or good or bad, the program really entreated us to look at accidents and incidents and human actions in terms of the context. Why did it make sense for people to do what they did? And that became a very important and underlying theme for what we later on called the learning review at the Forest Service.
0: Well, Ivan, I have to ask you, so once you actually get a hold of Decker's book and you read it and you say that, you know, you read it from... California to Denver, and all of a sudden you're, we need to contact Sidney Decker. What was it that, I guess, got you excited by reading the book that you said, I need to get more information?
2: Well, see, this almost begs a picture of the book. So the, the uh, post-it notes that that are on the margin of this book, on every page of this book, would point to something on nearly every page that said, hey, wait a minute, this is different. Hey, wait a minute, this is important. And so the first was that, I, like I said, I'd been very classically trained in accident investigation. And in that classical training, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't, I don't want to, to say that it's either this or this. That's not the case. In fact, I would really say it's this and. What I began to realize, though, was that we were so vested in technical ways of looking at accidents and incidents that we were applying the same philosophic approach to a human accident, as we did to mechanical accidents. And so the language followed. We had language like they failed to do this or there was a failure in this. Well, that that language is eventually mechanical. Mechanical components fail. People fail too. I mean, don't get me wrong, but there's usually a lot more involved in it than a single root cause that you can pin down. And so Sydney started to challenge those ideas on every page, the ideas that we could have a socio technical model that was fundamentally rooted in the technical. He challenged that on every page of the book. And he asked us, he said, you know, how can we look at this from the perspective of those involved? How can we start to understand why it made sense? And that question is really a very different question than it is posed by did the people fail? Were they reckless? Did they not follow rules, regulations, and procedures? It, it got to the Why did it make sense for them not to follow rules, regulations, policies, and procedures? That became a much more substantive question. And if we think back on on James Reason, who I think really put this canoe in the water many years before, when he said, you can't change the human condition. In other words, people are going to make mistakes, right? So you can't change the human condition, but you can change the conditions under which humans work. Well, to me, that meant that our focus should shift from the decisions and actions of people to understanding what the conditions were, because the conditions influence what people do in the workplace. And if we really want to change what people are doing, our focus has to be generated on that specific target of understanding those conditions and then managing the conditions rather than trying to manage the people.
0: And I guess that really becomes the aha moment for most organizations once they get that information, but it's almost very difficult to have some people buy into that. But let me kind of jump back a little bit and and we'll come back to this particular piece. So once you actually get Sydney on the phone and you start talking, how long does it take him to, I, I won't say convince, but encourage you to join his program abroad?
2: Uh, Super question. So Sydney tells me, Hey, Ivan, I'm going to be in Denver next week. I happen to be going to Fort Collins and visiting a friend of mine up there at the university. How would you like to meet me in Fort Collins and drive me to the Denver airport? And I go, Sure, (laughs) not a problem. So uh, we meet in Fort Collins and we start driving and we start dialogue. He's got his son Jonathan with him and I've got my wife with me and the four of us are really talking. Jonathan's quite young, young at the time, but he's still engaged and we end up going by the Air Force Museum at the old Air Force base there in, in, uh, in Denver and uh, we start poking around old airplanes and Sydney's excited and I'm excited. And I'm like, well, this guy's, you know, this guy's not just a social scientist. He's really interested in airplanes too and it was by the time that afternoon ended that he said, come join me at the Program in London, and I'm going to go one further than that. So he asked me to stick around and, and start a PhD program with him, which I later I later had to transfer to Tilburg University because Sydney left uh, left Lund. But while I was there and working on this on the PhD program, I brought my wife to some of the meetings in in Sweden, and my wife started to engage with Sydney. And Sydney turns to her and says, "Well, Chris, you're smarter than I am. You should you should by all means join the <laughs> master's program." And she goes, Well, Sydney, I couldn't afford it. And no, he says, You don't understand. It's on me. You'll be a Sydney special. So my wife actually went through the program at Lund as well as a Sydney special. And so we kind of keep this in the family. and We generate a lot of work together. A lot of the things that we do, we do together. There's a, a paper on the learning review that we actually drafted together. And Chris's specialty is language. And the reason I bring this up is because Sydney really made us think in that master's degree program. His, his constant underlying question was, is that so? And Chris really took the is that so to, in the language direction, and she took it very forcefully into the language direction so that she began to start to ask the question, is that so in language? And she found, it, found some really fantastic research done by Lyra Boroditsky uh, about language. She found some other really great pieces about language and showed that the language that we were using in accident investigation was actually inhibiting learning. And so it was. It was through this coupling, this dialogue between Chris and I, between the entire Decker crew, between Sydney and I, uh, between Todd Conklin and I. It was in this mix of dialogues and challenging each other and constantly asking, "Is that so?" That different concepts around safety began to emerge. I'll give you an example. As we started looking at safety in the Forest Service, we started realizing and this is again from Chris's work, that we nominalized the word safety. We'd made it a noun. And as we took the activity, the action out of the word safety by making it a noun, we began to hurt ourselves in terms of learning. And Chris points this out. The next thing that emerged out of that was an understanding on the part of all of us that if we weren't moving learning forward, we weren't progressing in safety. So the, the thing that we based our our learning review on a series of principles that we could all agree to. And one of the principles was that that safety, the currency of safety is information. And if you do things inside your system to disrupt the ability to get information, you're making your system less safe. So that's a big, big piece of it. But then we also understood that the currency of, of a safety program, of moving safety forward, the way we actually capitalize on moving safety forward is fundamentally through learning so our our entire perspective on everything said if we're not learning if we're not moving learning forward if we're not putting ourselves in a position where information is not only solicited and encouraged is rewarded then we're not doing what we need to do to make the system safer and so the question is well did anything come of doing this well we instituted the learning review in the forest service we adopted it in uh 2015 and um, up until that point <clears throat> we had been violated by OSHA generally usually under the general duty clause which is which says essentially that a workplace uh, an employer is responsible for creating a workplace free from known hazard which is a little tough when you're fighting wildland fire right we pay hazard pay and we go into a forest where there's trees that break and limbs that fall and trees that fall and oh there's fire by the way uh, so hazards are kind of part of the job so that was a little bit ludicrous to us when we'd get that violation but we listened to it we understood what osha was trying to say uh and we kind of fed the fires for osha with the old type of investigation because basically we would say that people failed to follow rules regulations, policies and procedures and uh of course if osha sees that that's kind of an automatic violation well if they didn't follow them that's because you didn't enforce them that was the conclusion that they drew enter in sydney's thinking. And our questions became, why did it make sense for them not to follow a rule, regulation, policy, or procedure? Was the rule not followable? Was it not clear to them? Did it not apply to the circumstance? What was the situation that prevented us or prevented our people from following that rule, regulation, policy, or procedure? So the questions became fundamentally different as a result of this, this process. And once we got the process up and running, We enjoined OSHA to see what it was that we were doing. And what we were doing was creating Network of Influences map. We looked at influences, not causes. We wanted to understand the conditions, the situations, if you will, that influenced people to do what they did. And by using the word influence, another gift from our our linguistic side, by using the word influence, we didn't have to go improve causality. It's no longer necessary to say that there was a causal connection between these two things. We can now talk about things in terms of influence. This became super important, especially when we started thinking about fatigue, because nobody could really quantify fatigue, but we knew our firefighters were tired. How could we talk about fatigue if we had to prove that it was causal, when we couldn't really prove the causality, because everybody's degree of fatigue is different than everybody else's degree of fatigue. So there's no direct cause-effect relationship. But we can say, and we can all agree, that fatigue was an issue in that it influenced the way people performed on the fire line. Once we started softening that language, we started a different type of dialogue. And then what we realized is that we couldn't just let that dialogue sit in the hands of some investigator who was imbued by the power to do the investigation. Instead, what we had to say was that power is non-existent. The investigator, if you will, in fact, we removed the word investigator altogether, The person who's in charge of this review, this learning review, their job is to bring together the conditions and then verify that those conditions exist in normal work environments. So we literally moved away from the accident as quickly as we possibly could and into normal work. And we started developing these lists of conditions. The first ones were, (laughs) were challenging for a lot of our leadership because they look really complicated. They're very big, colorful diagrams with lots and lots of influences on them. And we realized that some of our leadership was overwhelmed by that. And so instead what we did was we started thinking about the conditions in, in terms of how they could be managed. So the first category would be things that are outside of our control. Are there things that belong strictly to a regulator, for example? <clears throat> and they're outside the organization's ability to control in terms of changing those conditions. In that case, it's an awareness issue. We needed to be aware that it was there. And if we could, at some point, we might be able to influence the regulator to change the conditions, change whatever it was that they were using as a metric or whatever it was that they were using as their, their balancing uh, mechanism to determine if something was done incorrectly or done wrong. The second category were things that are long-term changes. So you would look at these things as things that were like uh, conditions that, that pointed to the culture of the organization. The third category that we broke the conditions into were conditions that we could change right away and would have an effect on the system. So, for example, here we would look at perverse incentives inside the system. What kinds of incentives were inside the system that worked against what the organization asked its people to do? An example of that might be overtime. So, overtime is something that is super important to firefighters because it's how they make their money. But are they taking greater chances? Are they working longer hours when they are fatigued? so that they can get that over time. Is overtime therefore, putting an undue influence inside the system or perverse influence inside the system? So those are things that are fairly short-term, and we can go about changing them. Case structure in the organization, uh, work schedules, those kinds of things. And the last category that we had were things that we, we recognized might have some influence, but the influence was negligible, and if we changed it, it either wouldn't do any good or it could actually create some counterproductive uh, things inside the system. Some unforeseen uh, responses, systemic responses, and that's what we then presented to leadership. And the leadership kind of had a uh, a minute to look at to start thinking about how they would go about initiating some of these changes. And one of the things that emerged out of that was that leadership actually engaged the entire Forest Service in dialogues, and we were able to feed in some of the topics based on these these accidents that we'd had and the conditions that we'd mapped we were able to feed topics into leadership so that leadership could begin to look at things from a different perspective and start to dialogue with the entire organization about them. The second big or third big uh, benefit that emerged out of the, uh, out of the learning review was the families of the fallen firefighters were now recognized. We didn't hold them off. We didn't stiff arm them and keep them in a corner. We literally let them know as the, as the learning review was progressing, that we let them know what we were finding out we let them know and see what we were learning and as a result of that the families felt more involved and they felt less like we were out to get their family members and more like we were really there to learn something so that the next firefighter in that situation wouldn't have the same problem and so the families started to really come behind the learning review and stand behind it as opposed to standing against it and in, in many cases bringing litigation against the organization
0: so, Ivan, let me ask you a question. So, when you start this learning review and this starts going down the path, when are you having, like, year-wise, what year are we talking about? You're starting to have these conversations. Well, let's start off with, when did the, like, the learning review been, when, did it, when was it developed? And then when are these conversations with the family members or the people that were involved in the accidents?
2: Another great question. Um, so 2006 was the, the first foray into looking at accidents differently. This was the aviation accident that I mentioned uh, that involved ground personnel. And that, that's when we first started looking at accidents differently. Every year thereafter, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, we were developing the learning review process. And we developed, them, we developed it by, essentially by trial and error. We tried something to see if it would work. And then we keep it if we liked it and it did work and we would get rid of it if it didn't work. So it was an iterative process over a period of about five or six years to about 2011, 2012, um, that we actually, actually, uh, formalized the process in 2012. And then it was instituted in 2013. So it took some time to get it to where it was. But during that period of time, we were, we were exploring Different ways to do things. We were exploring the idea of focus groups. Um, How do we bring the information that we learn from the accident into the general uh, population to understand if it really did exist in normal work? The way we found to do that best was to have focus groups and simply bring people together who did that type of work and ask them, hey, look at this. This is what we've mapped. These are the influences that we see. Do they exist in your work environment? Are they something that you, you see on a regular basis? And then we'd also involve the focus group in helping us to figure out what kind of recommendations we might make to leadership. Leadership still wanted recommendations. So we wouldn't sit there as investigators anymore and kind of say, hey, these hands are blessed by God, and I'm imbued with all this information and knowledge, and I know exactly how to fix the problem. We kind of go, man, we don't know how to fix the problem. And maybe the people that do know how to fix the problem are the ones closest to work, and maybe we should ask them before we write a report that makes us really look silly because we did a lot of that. And then the third thing that we, we realized along the way was, you know, maybe we don't think we do are a community either. Maybe we need to bring in outside experts. And for this, we brought in people like uh, uh, Edgar Schein. We brought in Carl White. Uh, we brought in a dear friend of mine by the name of Ruben McDaniel, who's since passed away. So these are professors who spent their lives researching different aspects of societal interaction, community interaction, culture. And we asked them, hey, what do you see in what we're doing? And they, in every case, provided us with useful insights that allowed us to begin to challenge our concepts. Uh, one great example was uh, John Adams, who wrote the book Risk which was great and that that looked at risk from a very different perspective we brought john adams and we asked him hey we have a situation here where leadership is saying that they took an unnecessary risk how do you read this help us understand this and uh and he basically uh gave us the ammunition that we needed to go back to leadership and say you know that perspective is fundamentally flawed and it's flawed for this reason that people normalize risks in the workplace it's not that they're taking unnecessary risks it's that that through the course of a normal operation, as you're exposed to risk, the tendency of every human being is to normalize that risk. So the value of probability, if you will, is diminished in any system where risks are, where workers are exposed to risk for a prolonged period of time. And when we brought that argument to our leadership, leadership began to see it. And, and the language, again, inside the organization, inside the agency, the language around risk began to change and the dialogues began to change around risk. And they began to have a great deal more meaning to our workforce and to our leadership. And it actually bridged a gap. We had a pretty fundamental gap in in trust between field and the leadership. And that gap began to close because of the the shift in thinking and in questioning and this this new language that we were introducing around risk.
0: So now do you look back at some of this and and I know that this is going to be terrible wording, but kind of chuckle and go, isn't it amazing that so many years later, we still have the same issue with language and that we still have these same problems inside of organizations? What do you think is causing this?
2: Oh, it's a great question. It's, It's not a causal thing, it's an influence. And we're influenced by a bunch of different things in our culture. So for example, it's much easier to look at risk in terms of good or bad or actions and activities in terms of good or bad actions and it's super easy to do that if, if there's been an accident because then you can just look and say it was a bad action you should never have done that which enters into this counterfactual argument Sydney talks so much about it in, in his field guide to understanding human error but the problem with that is it doesn't get us anywhere because we're talking about something that never happened instead of talking about what did happen and so why are we seduced into this Well, I think that part of the seduction comes from an ease in creating something that looks like it makes sense. And it's an oversimplification. What Carl White would say is we as an organization should be reluctant to simplify. But what we do in accidents is we have a tendency to simplify because we want to tell that simple answer. We want to say that this was the cause and we can fix that cause so so that it will never happen again. Well, Much of the problem with that is that accident investigations, the entire process, is focused on a single incident as opposed to a group of incidents. And as we look at a single incident, it's easy to go back in and say if they turned left instead of turning right, then we should, they would have avoided the accident. Does that mean that we should always turn left? And the answer to that is obviously no. The problem with the processes that we had in place were they fixed the accident that happened, but they didn't prepare us for what was happening in the future because the world was a complex place. And to Reuben McDaniel. Now, our group, my group sat at the feet of Reuben McDaniel for uh, several years learning about complex adaptive systems from Reuben. And Reuben really gave us the, the, the idea that what we should be thinking about in a complex system is not trying to fix broken pieces, broken components of the system, not trying to even plug the holes in the Swiss cheese, so to speak. But instead, what we should be under, should be endeavoring to do is building the capacity of our work source, workforce to make sense of conflicting information, learn in the moment and innovate solutions. And how do you build a capacity for an organization to do that? Well, the beginning, beginning of the call, I think I, I felt in that I, I was flying airplanes for a long time. And I looked back on my background as an aviator. And what I realized is that sense-making, learning, and improvisation was something that aviators did quite naturally. And so I started thinking, well, if aviators do it quite naturally, why are they doing it quite naturally? So as opposed to looking at, at the problem from the perspective of why aren't we doing this, I started looking at it from the perspective of why are we and how could we be doing this? And that permeated not only the organization and our approach to training and our approach to education within the organization, but it also changed the way we did our accident investigations. I'm saying those two things are are inextricably linked. It also redefined learning for the organization. So as opposed to learning what to do or what what not to do, our focus became, how can we become better learners in the moment? And a lot of that comes down to things that Amy Edmondson talks about in terms of teaming, I mean, how do we communicate as a group? What Carl White talks about in terms of group sense making, these things start to come into focus for us as we start to network them together. And that's what we began to learn. Now, your question, which I've done a pretty good job, I think, of dodging around, was why don't we change our old way of doing things? Why are we still mired in the old way of doing things? And I think that the best way to do that is to go back to that concept of seductive. What I've suggested in this approach is difficult. It's hard work. It's not easy work to do and not everybody can do it. But if we think about a technical accident investigation, it's technical. It's not that hard to do. If this, then that, those things are pretty easy. But if our if then piece is so diluted that if this happens, Anything can happen afterwards. An infinite number of varieties of, of outcomes can result. That's a really big, heady space for people to get into. And it's really quite difficult for folks to do it.
0: And you see, that's what I start finding interesting, because I always think it's interesting when somebody does, as you deemed, a technical accident investigation. They start off really by doing it from the perspective of they're looking for someone to find fault that actually caused the accident. So when you start taking the approach of what other things caused the failure, now keep in mind that after you have all this stuff in context of, well, this is what happened and this is how the sequence occurred, you're going to have a different context of what happened in real time. So what I look at is, how do you get organizations to do the shift of, <laughs> oh, you see, it, it is one of those things that you almost have to chuckle at because it's an ongoing problem. And we're having this conversation about something that you did years ago. And think about it. It's still an issue that we have today with organizations where they still want to go to the old style of investigation. And let's be realistic. They don't want to change out of whatever system or program that we're using in regards of doing safety, quote unquote, to what we would call the new view safety. So what can we do to influence those people?
2: Yes, so that's a great, again, a great question. I think you're really good at what you do. Um, In answering that, I can tell you how we did it in the Forest Service. So we started out with a thing called the Serious Accident Investigation Guide. Chapter 1, second paragraph, stated this. The causes of most accidents or incidents are the result of failures to observe established policies, procedures, and controls. When I got sent on my first investigation, this is the document that I was given. And I read that paragraph and I said, I don't even need to go. I've already got my cause. It's right there. The causes of most accidents or incidents are the result of failures to observe established policies, procedures, and controls. All I have to do is say that. It's simple. Then I can do some little behind-the-scenes stuff. I can do a, a grandiose timeline if I want to, and I can show this this direct relationship between this, this, and this. And, and I can come up with my summary of findings, and I can come up with my recommendations, and I can give that to leadership. And you know what? After 20 years of that, nothing changed. In fact, our accident accident rate was getting worse. So, having said what I just said, it's really important to, to see that the impetus on leadership was for some kind of change. So, we've got to be in a position where we are willing to challenge the old way of doing things. And that's from a leadership level as well as a field level. The field was screaming because they understood that this was with nonsense. The stuff that you're doing is just simply blaming the dead people for their own accident. And it didn't make any sense to them. In fact, they hated it. And the families of the fallen firefighters were suing every single time we put out a report because the findings were fundamentally useless and just telling people that their loved ones were stupid and died because they were stupid or because they just chose not to follow rules, regulations, policies, or procedures. So what we did was we first sent, we first joined leadership in a dialogue. In fact, we sent them to a program um, called Dialogos, several of them to a program called Dialogos. It was actually called Learning for the Collective Intelligence, or Leadership for the Collective Intelligence. And that program uh, put several of our top leaders in a position where they began to inquire about the way they were thinking. They got that, is that so gene infused into their beings. Then they came back into the fold, into the Forest Service, and Now they were looking for an answer to that question. Is that so enter in a new way to do investigations? We now present them with a different way of doing it. And they're in a mode of more receptivity because they're looking for something and we give them something very different. That's literally what happened. When we dropped the first one of these on their desk, I remember it was a hot June, excuse me, hot July day in, in, uh, um, Washington D.C. I'm wearing a suit, I'm completely sweating through because it's just brutally hot, and I'm nervous that they're not going to accept this new type of report. And I sit down in the in the boardroom, and it's very you know pomp and ceremony. There's locked doors. There's signs on the doors: "Do not disturb." Secret meeting in progress. Blah 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 blah. All cell phones have to be stashed away. All these kinds of things to maintain top secrecy. All the copies of the document are numbered, and there's a limited limited distribution of them, and there's voting members on the board, and oh my gosh, it was just lots and lots of pomp and circumstance. And I sat there, and I I was very nervous about this, and the the gentleman who was in charge of it was a guy by the name of Hank Cashton, and Hank was a very forward-thinking, very brilliant individual, who had that is that so gene ingrained, And, and I didn't know this at the time, and I'm sitting there really nervous as the chief investigator to deliver my report, And uh, Hank comes in a few minutes late. He takes his coat off with a flourish. He hangs it up on the hanger behind it. He sits down at the end of the table with a couple of copies of the report. He picks one up. He ruffles through the pages. And then he throws it on the table. And I think, oh, I'm done. This is it. He's going to throw the report (laughs) back at me. It's over. And instead, he looked at me and he said, I read this last night for the fourth time. And what I can say is I want more of this. So part of it is just doing it. Part of it is just just getting out there and doing the thing, whatever the thing is, your review of incidents, your review of accidents, doing it differently and bringing the information to leadership in a way that allows leadership to lead. And what is leading? I mean, leading has to be redefined as well. Leading is creating a workplace where workers can be successful. This is another thing that we learn. And so in this process, leadership has to be willing to learn as well. And that's that's really what Dialogos did for us. They wrote a diagnostic memo that essentially said that to leadership. Leadership was kind of put on notice. The chief backed us up, and this designated safety and health official, Hank Ashton, backed us up and asked for more. So that's how the the transformation took place inside the Forest Service. The next phase was to, to expand that learning or leadership, and to put them in positions where they could question openly. Well, you know, most organizations don't do that with leadership. They don't allow leaders to question. Leaders are supposed to know. Well, that's a really dangerous place for people to be. And so what we did was we we started a leadership learning journey, a safety learning journey. And we took our leaders to a whole bunch different places. We took them to the Coast Guard. Uh, uh, Todd Conklin was teaching at Los Alamos National Lab at the time. We took them to Lanel And Introduce them to these different ways of doing things and put them in a position where they could ask questions because they weren't in their own environment any longer. And that helped them because that showed them that by being in a mode of inquiry, they could actually move their learning forward and that would help the entire agency. And then along came Edgar Schein. We brought Edgar Schein before them and Edgar talked to them about uh, humble inquiry. And, uh, and it, it gelled together. So basically what we did was we built a, a nuanced systemic approach to how we could bring leadership along, understanding that leadership was influenced by things as well, and put them in a position where they could begin to question, is that so? And it really worked.
0: So I guess my question to you becomes this. So let's say, for instance, we have an organization that's listening to this podcast, and they want to start that particular journey. How would the approach start? Because you have to keep in mind that a lot of organization nowadays, the way that it works is, well, if you don't have that many incidents, your management is going to have a bonus based on that. If you don't have that many fatalities, I know it's sad to say, but it's the reality of the situation, you will get some sort of bonus out of it. The other portion is we expect an operational person to be able to understand, and I'm talking about like a vice president, president, so on, to understand better in regards of a process than what an actual worker can do in regards of being safe. So how can you take that approach going into an organization and saying, this is, these are the steps of what you should do? And I know that, you know, the U.S. Forest Service did something entirely different because they had the open mind of moving forward with it. But what would you say with a, for a typical organization that's starting off or somebody who's trying to bring this to, let's say, for instance, the upper management, a board, and saying, these are some new ideas that we need to address.
2: Let me, let me think about this a little bit now. I've, I've got some experience in doing this with a couple of companies.
0: No pressure, right? Uh, no whatsoever.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Uh, and, I, and I have run into this kind of resistance, right? Um, quite frequently, we're brought in at a level of the, the health and safety uh, leadership of the organization, not necessarily at the vice president or presidential level of an organization. So often we're brought in, in a, in a place where it is difficult for somebody to say, Hey, leader, you need to learn, right? Uh, what we, what we do in this particular case is we literally set the stage for a dialogue to take place between the health and safety folks and the leadership And we usually do that around a fatality accident. Sadly, this is usually where we get the greatest amount of leverage. And in this case, what we do is we literally bring them a process now that is fully developed. Remember, the Forest Service, it wasn't fully developed in the beginning. But now we bring them a fully developed process that they can use to create something that is meaningful and is a learning product for them. And then point to other successful places where this has taken place, not just within the Forest Service, but other places where it's taken place. And we show them that the possibility exists for them to do this and whatever it was that they were doing before. So we don't undermine their old systems of doing things. That that was a mistake I think we made early on. And I think some of the folks that, that bring safety differently and other concepts like this forward not all of them, I think a lot, of, a lot of them are really good about this, but some of them set up this either or. You've got to do this or you've got to do this. You can't do both. And what we realized is you can't do both. You can still do a technical report. In fact, there's a very important place for technical reports within the learning review. And sometimes the technical report is takes precedence over the, the social aspect of the accident. But other times, the social aspect takes, place, takes precedence over the technical. And we let Leadership know this in the first dialogue, where we first present them with uh, if they want to continue to use the language of language uh, the language of investigation then we don't we don't undermine that, but we bring it to them in their board or their review process, and we show them that there is another way to do it, and then we gauge based on their response how much further we can push. The other thing that happens inside organizations, which I think is really interesting, is something that Todd. Brought out of Los Alamos National Laboratory to the to the public, and this is this idea of um, HOP and these these hope dialogues or hop dialogues, and these are things that are, are designed and where we had the most ex- most success with them. In my experience, is where we have leadership and the field folks in the same room, and we have these dialogues that general, generally challenge people's thinking around causality, uh, but don't do it around something that is that is. Unique to that company, do it around something that is completely outside what the company's experience is, because that allows people to move into that mode of inquiry. And so, between the hope dialogues and or hop dialogues, and the doing the present doing the actual uh, investigative process differently, and presenting different information differently to leadership, we begin to network. A change in the way leadership approaches these problems and that becomes something that permeates the entire agency over time remember this is a cultural shift it's not going to happen overnight and we're fighting a cultural shift that exists in the media I mean if there's an accident the first thing they want to know is causality right uh, yesterday um, uh, on, the, on CBS news Tony de is interviewing the head of the school system for Los Angeles, and he asks the question, well, you've got the teachers here on the one side, you've got the school system on the other side, who's the villain? And the answer on the part of the administrator is, does there have to be a villain? I don't think there has to be a villain. And that was really an insightful answer, but the media push is, we need to have that that villain. And Tony DiCoppo comes back essentially saying, well, yes, there has to be, because this side is against that side. That's not really true, Right. Neither one of them has to be a villain. Each one of them has a perspective that has to be enjoyed in order for, for us to find a solution. And it's If we stay in this language of good, bad, villain, we're never going to move forward. And here we're talking on this podcast, on the anniversary of Billy Sorenberg landing on the Hudson. And why wouldn't we talk about that for a moment? Because had everybody died on that airplane, we would not be calling him a hero we'd have a very different word for them. And it's probably the same one that Tony de used. So when we start to think about the way we make these judgments, often they're around the outcome. And the one thing that the worker didn't, doesn't know in this process, especially if there's going to be a fatal accident is what that outcome is. And so to try and hold them to a standard of prediction is completely unfair. and, and, After a while, leadership begins to understand that. It takes a lot of dialogues. It takes a lot of exposure. It takes some some really uh, dedicated internal folks inside the agencies. This is one of the other things that I think is really important. We can't do this completely from an outside, like a contractor can't come in and and suddenly imbue leadership with this information. There has to be somebody on the inside, an internal champion or set of champions. And there has to be an ability to hold these dialogues, to allow People to begin to talk about these tough subjects and begin to challenge the way they've thought about things over time. And it does work.
0: So you know that automatically when you go into an organization, there's a couple of questions that come up right away. Number one being, how long is this going to take to be developed? Opposed to, you know, thinking about it's a culture shift. They want to know how long it's going to take. The other question that normally comes up is, what is my return on an investment? And then I know you started speaking about hop, but I want to make sure that I'm, that I, that I asked this question, cause I always like to ask it, do you start referencing about hop and let people know that it's a philosophy and not a program? Because those things normally surprise most organizations. And I know I kind of tied three questions into one there, but I would <laughs> love for you to actually address those.
2: Yeah. So let's start with the, uh, let's just kind of think about it holistically and see if we can answer all three questions. (laughs) Um, So answering a question about HOP depends on where the organization is uh, in terms of their sense of linearity. If they're still stuck deeply in a cause-and-effect relationship – it can be really, really challenging to come at them and say, "Hey, this is a philosophy. This is you're going to look at this and start to think about things from a perspective that is not only systemic, but it's also fundamentally based in principles and a shift in principles." You know, you could just you could just look at a whole bunch of engineers and see their eyes just glaze over. And I know this is to be true because I, I'm a, I'm actually a professor in an engineering program, and I've tried it and seen it. Engineers don't relate to this well. So, how do you bring engineers over into a different place. It's a very different type of conversation. Um, So that's part of it. It is important for them to understand that it's not a a process. It's a journey. But sometimes it's not easy for organizations to understand that because again, you're saying that we need a return on investment. Let's look at um, strange circumstances like trying to bring this to the federal government, where we have people who are in in power for up to four years, maybe longer, maybe not longer, but they're thinking in terms of four-year brackets of time. Cultural shifts in a four-year bracket of time are really difficult to institute. So how do you make that happen? The fallback position here is to help the organizations understand that shifting language shifts culture. And this is where the work of my wife comes in so importantly, is that this idea that if you can shift the language within the, co- within the organization, you can begin to shift the culture without even trying. Now, how hard is it to shift language? Well, you start writing in a certain way. You start moving, removing causality from your language. You start removing uh, these, these direct relationship types of things from anything other than engineering problem solutions. Remember, you can't completely cut it out because it does exist and it is important in certain areas. For example, ergonomics. That's still a really important place for cause and effect relationships to, to occur. But in the interpretation of something that's beautifully ergonomically designed, in that interpretation, we may we may have some problems. So it becomes an effort to expand and say yes, and in the place of these, these discussions with leadership. Now, I I don't know if I was able to answer all three of those questions. I tried. Did I do it?
0: I think you did a pretty good tie if you ask me. But you do reference something on there that I want to go back to. And I know that you talk about your wife or speak about your wife in regards of language and how important it is. Now, I will tell you, the people that sit on the other side of the house, and when I say that, I mean the people that like to sit, talk about behavior-based safety. And I know we can sit around and talk about behavior-based safety versus hob and all that kind of fun stuff. I always look at it as... A Republican talking about Democrats and vice versa, or Chevy versus Ford, and I always kind of find I find it kind of interesting on how some people will turn entirely when you mention one over the other. But if you listen to a lot of people that speak about behavior based safety, they reference that also that there needs to be a language change. And I know that philosophies you'll never be able to mix those two together in regards of hop and behavior based safety. But do you just think that overall as an industry? our language is incorrect on how we approach things overall?
2: So I really don't like to make a judgment on whether it's incorrect or correct. I think instead, and this is what, what I've really advocated for in in every discussion that I've made, uh, with, any, with any company, with any degree or level of leadership, uh, even with the federal government, I went to, um, to the White House when, when Obama was president and did a presentation there on firefighter safety. And essentially what I said is this. You can can look at a behavioral-based safety model. You can look at the HOP model. And the thing that you need to ask yourself at the the, end of the day is, after you've done the presentations and you've done the discussions around both of these two things, you need to ask yourself one thing. And that is, am I moving learning forward in the organization? Am I putting our people in a position where they're going to provide me with more information because, again, as I say, information is the currency of safety. If it's doing those two things, you're going to be moving in a positive direction. So I'm not going to undermine behavioral-based safety. I don't personally advocate for it because I I see some problems with it in terms of its ability to move learning forward in an organization. And that makes me question it, and that makes me look at how they – Uh, present in terms of language and very frequently in behavioral-based safety models, you see things like, well, we'll make a determination of people's activities and if they're found to be reckless, then we're going to take punitive action. Well, reckless is a judgment in that case. And I have to ask, if we're making a judgment of action, is that putting people in a position where they're going to willingly give us more information? Is that putting us in a position where we're maximizing the learning from the processes that we're endeavoring to pursue. And I'm going to sum this up with something that the chief of the forest service said when we instituted the the learning review. And he says, accountability is important. It's important before, during and after any type of an event, but after an accident, a fatality accident in particular, we are accountable as an organization to learn everything we can from that incident. That's a very different perspective. And so I think that when we start to see leadership embrace that idea, it doesn't matter what label we put on the safety activity. What matters is how we deliver that safety activity to the worker and how we invest in leadership and how we invest in corporate and organizational learning. And remember, it's not learning what to do and what not to do. That's that's That comes in the form of teaching. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the capacity of the workforce to make sense of conflicting information learn in the moment, and innovate solutions. That's the skill set we want to start to invest in. And that's one of the reasons that aviation is so safe, is because we're able to do that
0: in aviation. Ivan, I have to tell you, that probably might have summed up the best answer I've ever received related to that question. And I'm not saying that because you're just here talking to me. I'm telling you that based on all the interviews that I've done so far to this point.
2: Well, thanks for that.
0: <laughs> Ivan, if, they, if people want to know more information about you, where can they find out some more?
2: So my wife and I have a company called Dynamic Inquiry, and um, we do not have a website. We haven't needed one. We're staying as busy as, <laughs> as we probably need to be. Uh, but uh, if they do want more information and they want some help and they want to see where we went wrong in the Forest Service and what we've learned along the way, I can be reached at at me.com.
0: Well, Ivan, I appreciate you coming on to Safety FM.
2: Well, thank you. I really really look forward to uh, keeping a dialogue with you, Jay, and I look forward to our next talk.
1: This episode has been powered by Safety FM.